May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. He couldn't quite remember when the idea started to percolate in his mind. He couldn't quite remember when it first crossed, when it flashed like a flash of insight. He couldn't quite remember when it first occurred to him that he might be hanging out with somebody significant, that he might even be in the presence of Messiah. He couldn't quite remember when it first crossed his mind. Maybe it was at the synagogue when he cast out the unclean spirit that was amongst them, a guy who had been going to church for years and nobody saw it, nobody knew it, but Jesus did. Maybe it was when on the Sabbath, the guy was brought before him with the withered arm. He hadn't made a good living in years because the accident. And Jesus just said, stretch it out. He was healed. Couldn't quite remember when it first crossed his mind. Maybe it was when he was walking on water one night. He thought he saw a ghost. Maybe it was when they were in the boat and they were crossing. And the storm was so bad that Peter, an experienced fisherman, lay in the base of the boat, curled up in the fetal position. Okay, it wasn't quite that bad. He had his bucket and was bailing. He was scared to death. He had never seen a storm so bad, and Jesus slept. Jesus was curled up in a fetal position, but not because he was scared, because he was resting. And the disciples wake him, shake him, and say, Don't you care if we are going to die? Jesus. Be still. Maybe it was one of those incidents that it was the first time that the flash of insight went racing through his mind that he realized I'm in the presence of somebody great, somebody significant, somebody different. Who knows? But after three years of spending time with him, after three years, they find themselves in Caesarea Philippi and Jesus gives them the final exam. Who do you say I am? Peter, the one who puts his foot in his mouth regularly. In fact, it's going to happen just moments later. Peter says in Mark chapter 8. Who do people say that I am in verse 27? Or excuse me, verse 29. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man, this is Jesus' favorite title for himself, the Son of Man, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. You know, he has a knack for parables, right? He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to stick his foot in his mouth and rebuked him and said, it doesn't tell us what it says, does it? What Peter said. 
Rebuke is the same word that was used when Jesus would rebuke the demons, by the way. It's pretty strong rebuke. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Yeah. He said, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for you to gain the whole world, yet forfeit your soul? Or what can you give in exchange for your soul? If any of you are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation then the Son of Man will be ashamed of you when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Hmm. That doesn't sound like the nice Jesus that I always read about on Facebook from my friends who are more of the liberal persuasion. This Jesus sounds kind of mean. Did you, did you hear that? Did you hear that exchange? There's a couple of key things that we learned from this exchange, and I have 15 minutes to tell you what they are. (laughs) First thing we learn is that Jesus is king. You and I are in church world. We don't always see the words the way that we're supposed to see them. And so let me unpack them and help you understand this. Jesus is king. And he's not a king. He's the king. Elsewhere in the Bible, we learn that he is king of king and lords of lords. Do you picture Jesus as a king? Picture him as king of your life, king of the world, king of the cosmos, king of everything. Do you picture Jesus as king? See, just kind of a lucky charm you pull out of your pocket when things aren't going well, when you need a parking spot. Is he just your buddy, your friend, your confidant? See, your little helper that when you need problems solved, you just pray a little prayer. Oh, Jesus, please help me. Is he just... Your church friend that you only think of him Sundays for a few hours because the Broncos start. And I'm thankful that the sermon is short this week. (laughs) How do you think of Jesus? Peter, because of some time in the past, because of something he saw, because God opened his eyes, whatever happened, Peter had a flash of insight and it said Jesus is Messiah. Then Jesus, as soon as he says, Jesus, you're the king. Jesus says, yeah, but I'm not any king. I'm not just any king. I'm not heading to a throne. I'm heading to a cross. What? Peter, he remembers stories when he's at mama's knee, when he's a little guy, and things were not going well for the Jewish people. There were were Romans. There were taxes. There were all sorts of things that were going on in Jerusalem, in Galilee, in all the places that Peter knew. And mom would sit there and she'd sing songs from the Psalms that proclaim the Messiah. She would talk to her son, Peter, and say, do not lose heart, my son. Because one day, the king will come. And you know what kings do when they come. They grab a throne. They muster an army. They kick butt and take names. 
And this king, this Jewish king, this Hebrew king will do that too. For however long Peter had lived to the point of this revelation, at this point of insight, when he tells Jesus, you're the Messiah, you're the king, what do you think is going on in Peter's brain? Where's the drones? Where's the tanks? Where's the white horse? Where's the swords? Where's the catapults? Let's do this. Let's go big or go home, Jesus. Then what does Jesus do? What does he do right after Peter says this? I mean, he does not want Peter confused. He does not want Peter to listen to mom. He wants Peter to listen to him. He wants Peter to understand, I'm a king, but I came not for a throne, but a cross. Peter keeps listening to mom. Rebukes Jesus. What do you mean? Haven't you seen what these Romans have done to us? What do you mean? Haven't you seen what has happened to us? Haven't we waited long enough for our deliverance? And you're going to a cross? Whose agenda does Peter have in mind? It's so easy to see in other people, isn't it? I mean, it's so easy to see in other people. It's so easy to go, oh, Peter's just wrong here. He's got his own agenda. He's treating Jesus like he's somebody to be used for his own advantage, for his own help. He's just treating Jesus as a lucky charm. He's treating Jesus as, oh, now I've got my life and Jesus too. This is going to be awesome. So easy to see in other people. Hard to see in us. So hard. So much of the time, American theology is all about the American dream and very little about God. So much of the time, American theology is about us being safe and comfortable and feeling good and happy. And my goodness, isn't that what we all want? And aren't there old, old documents, founding documents that say that those are our rights? Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness? If those are our rights, then Jesus is the king. Then therefore, he's supposed to work for me. Last I checked. Last I checked, you go into the presence of a king, you are asked to put your sword down. Last I checked, you go into the presence of a king, they coach you up on, here's what you do. Here's how you speak. Here's how you approach. If you fail to follow these protocols, there's a couple of little guardians on each side of the throne with swords, with spears. And besides them, there's a couple of guard rooms full of dudes. And their whole job is to sit in there and just wait for somebody to get rowdy in the presence of the king. And my goodness, they're bored. They are bored out of sight of their minds. Why don't you just go in there and cause a little stir? Last I checked, that's how kings work. Kings aren't somebody you just pull out of your pocket when you need a parking spot. Kings aren't somebody you just pull out of your pocket when you need an answer to something. Kings aren't a little thing that you just, I'll obey you if. I'll obey you if. Really? 
Really? I'll obey you if. You know, if you say, I'll obey you if, you are negotiating. You are negotiating with the king. Every single time I've read about that in history, unless you yourself are a king as well, it doesn't go well for you. You're exiled. You lose your head. Anybody watch the movie Alice in Wonderland? Off with her head. Where do we get that statement? From kings, from queens. Jesus is a king. He's a king that goes to a cross. We are to approach him not in a negotiating manner. In fact, if we're going to follow him, it says we need to go to the cross too. Gosh, I hate this part of the Bible. Oftentimes I have friends who are a bit on the liberal persuasion on Facebook. And they argue with me about the scriptures. They argue about me with God. And I say, guys, if there were things I could get rid of, if there were parts of the Bible I could get away with and just remove, I would. I would, I would blot them out. I would get rid of them. Hell, I'd get rid of it. I'd just toss it aside, except for maybe Hitler and Stalin and the really bad people, right? Satan probably needs to go there too. I, homosexuality, being against God's will. I'd I get rid of those passages. There's like eight of them. Just get them out of there. Sex before marriage. That's so old-fashioned. I'd get rid of that too because so many of you guys don't like that one. I mean, I'd get rid of all these stupid, archaic rules, but really, the place that I'd get rid of, I mean, at the, at the heart of it, the edicts by the king I'd get rid of, besides all those other edicts, the one I'd really want to get rid of is this one. You want to follow me, you go to a cross. See, I, I want to cry. I don't like that. I want to follow you and get the American dream. I want to follow you and have a good retirement. I want to follow you and get good health. I want to follow you and have everything go well for me. I want to follow you and have my my influence and my land and my accounts expand. I want to follow you and I want something out of this. You'll get something out of it. (laughs) Hmm. I don't like the term Christian much anymore. I don't like the word Christian much anymore because it's, it's been pretty, it's been pretty maligned of late. I don't like the word evangelical much either. Probably like evangelical less than Christian anymore. I don't like those terms much. And partly why I don't like the word Christian is because a lot of people use it as a verb. It's not very Christian of me. Hmm, that's weird. It's a really weird way to say it. I mean, probably a better way to be saying it would be, that wasn't a good way to obey the king. I wasn't obedient to the king. That, that's far better to say it that way. Let's just be honest, shall we? I mean, next time one of you comes and says, that wasn't very Christian of me, I'll be like, dude, you're negotiating with God. You're basically saying, I'll obey you if. If it doesn't inconvenience me, if it's not hard, if I agree with you. Who's king? Who's king? You see, this is a turning point in Mark's gospel. And the reason it's a turning point and the reason it is demonstrating the blindness of the disciples is because we share their blindness. 
I mean, we might go, yeah, Jesus is Messiah, Jesus is Christ, Jesus is God, Jesus is all these things. But do you really (laughs) practice that? Last I checked, man. (laughs) I grew up in this city. I can get away with saying some things sometimes. Y'all can kick me back to the city if you want. The city folk, we do what we're told. I mean, there's not as much rugged independence in the city. There's some. But you quickly are snapped back into being a lemming in the city. You quickly follow suit. You quickly, when in Denver, drive like those in Denver. When you go to the city, you do as you're told in the city. Why? Because we all know that mass chaos would ensue if we didn't follow some basic guidelines, follow some basic social norms. When I go to the city, I quit looking at people in the face. Especially on 16th Street Mall. That's a good way to get slugged or knifed or worse. Rural America, why do we live here? Because we don't like neighbors. Or at least fewer neighbors. If you're really honest, come on. Some of you like that your nearest neighbor is a fence post. You like it. You like that you can stop in the middle of the road and have a discussion. And people like me are just going, are you insane? What is going on here? And if that happens in Denver, oh my gosh, I love to lay on the horn. Here, I got to be nice. That's pastor. He's honking at people. I think he used his tall finger in that exchange just now. I got to be nice. In the city. Oh, man. This is a road. This isn't a conversation place. I don't care if you never saw the person. I mean, my point, rural people don't like to be told what to do. In my experience. If it hurts, sorry. If the shoe fits. Rural folk don't like to be told what to do. However, nobody likes to be told what to do. I hung out with a three-year-old recently. <laughs> hung out with your wife. Your husband. You raising a teenager. Anybody like to be told what to do? Does anybody like kings? Does anybody like kings? Does anybody like kings? Nobody likes kings. Nobody likes authority. Nobody likes to be told what to do. Nobody likes edicts. Nobody likes to have them, their lives told to them. Here's the power of Jesus at work. Did you see what he said? He used this word twice. It's a really good word. It's a powerful word. It's a really short word. It's a four-letter word. It's a word we don't think of much as meaning much, but it's this word. He said, must. The Son of Man must. Not, not has to or is gonna or, you know, must. Son of Man must. Why does Jesus use must? 
Because if he's going to accomplish what he's got in mind to do, if he's going to accomplish the Father's will for his life, he must suffer. And this is going to come to a test in a garden, a Gethsemane. You've seen paintings of it. Jesus is praying. And what is his prayer? God, help me just to have a better life. I'm really looking forward to my retirement years. And please help us pick a better leader for our emperor next time. And Lord, I ask that you would you know, just give me some things that I really have been working hard for. And help my kid with the health. And help my baby to be safe. And I mean, No, it's not all what Jesus says. He says, <laughs> he says, Take this away from me. Take take this cup that I'm about to drink. Take this thing that I talked to Peter about. Take this thing that I've talked three times about since chapter 8, since the book that Mark's going to write, since midway through his little book. Take that thing away. I talked about it three times. Why? Because they're clueless and didn't get it. I also talked about it because I'm busy trying to steal myself for this. Because I've stubbed my toe. I've stepped on Legos. I have cut myself. I was a carpenter. I've got a few appendages missing on my hand. I know what pain's like. I was scared of the dark when I was a kid. I was afraid when my father, Joseph, died. I do not want to go to this cross. But the Son of Man, what was the word? Must. Why? Why must he? <laughs> That's a funny word. Why must he? If he wants to accomplish what he's here to do, he's got to. He has to. He must. He must go. Because you and I, we all exist in this fake love reality. None of us really love the way we're supposed to love. All of us want to be loved in spite of who we are, right? And we expect other people to love us in spite of who we are. Hey, man, you know, just accept me for who I am. Tough darts if I got rough edges. You're going to have to deal with it. Yeah, that's what we want from spouses, from kids. We want people to just love us and not make us change. Trouble is none of us can love anybody like that. We always love with conditions. We always love saying, I'll love you if. This is why the Son of Man must die. He must do this because he's the only one that can love unselfishly, without condition. And this kind of love is costly. This kind of love will kill you. He also must do this because he's got to do this legally because there's a debt that has to be paid. A bunch of idiots, they decided to return to their vomit. They decided to continue to live in dumb ways. They decided to sin against God. They continued to do this over and over and over and over again. And God couldn't just go, it's okay. Why couldn't he just say it's okay? Because you can't. When somebody hurts you, just go, it's okay. Because you know that when somebody hurts you, when somebody breaks your stuff, when your kid crashed the car, somebody had to pay something to somebody to fix it. Right? It's just how it works. And when we sin, 
There's a debt that has to be paid. And you and I can pay it. Romans says the wages of sin is death. You and I can pay that debt. We will die. It can be paid. Or, son of man must suffer and be killed. Why must he suffer and be killed? Because legally, he can take your place. He can suffer in your place. He can, he can live the life that you couldn't live. He can live this sinless life where he didn't return to vomit. He never vomited. He never did anything outside of the moral bounds of God. And because of that, he can live a perfect sinless life and die in your place. He can offer that to you. You can pay that debt. The Son of Man also must die because cosmically, there's some baddies that need to be beaten. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. It says that when he went to the cross, he defeated the powers and principalities in high places. Jesus made the worst thing that can happen to you, death, become the best thing that can happen to you. <laughs> you see, one of the things that high-powered principalities and powers at least the earthly kind, what can they do? They can threaten to kill you. That's the worst they got for you. That's the worst they can do to you. And some of you are going, that's pretty bad. Yeah, it is bad. This past week, I, last Sunday, I told you guys about my brother's father-in-law. And uh, when they started waking him out of the coma, there was no brain activity. So on Monday... He died. His funeral's tomorrow in Dallas. He was 65. Shook my parents quite significantly. Partly because John did everything you're supposed to. Exercised, ate well. My parents don't really do that stuff. And it's starting to dawn on them that nobody gets out of here alive, regardless of what you do to stave off death. You don't get out of here alive. None of y'all. Eugene Peterson said that the calling of a minister is to remind people that they will die and they want to have a good death when it happens. You didn't know that's why you called me as your pastor, did you? Jesus tells us in this passage how to make sure you have a good death when you die. Did you hear the language he starts going for? He says, what good is it if you save your life, your physical life, but you lose your soul? (laughs) What can you do to get your soul back? He says, if you want to have life, then die. And the amazing thing is, and I'm starting to learn this personally, (laughs) that this is the closest to hell If you follow Christ, this is the closest to hell. This life is the closest to hell you will ever be. But if you don't follow Christ, then this life is the closest to heaven you will ever be. One final thing on this cosmic thing, because Tim Keller had this great comment I want to share with you. He says this, If you embrace Jesus and you know the worst thing that can possibly happen to you, death, 
is the best thing now. Even death can just make you something glorious. Even death can just put you in his arms. Even death can just make you all that you've always hoped to be. When death loses its sting, when death no longer has power over you because of what Jesus did on the cross, then nothing has power over you. I would add, save Christ. So, are you following Jesus? And if you are, what kind of Jesus are you following? Are you following King Jesus? I was going to share a photo of a crucified Jesus, but it's so gory, it's so ugly, I didn't want to frighten the children. (laughs) That's what he calls us to. That's what he calls us to. If you will follow Jesus, it says put aside your kingdom, put aside your agenda, put aside your desires for a happy, hungry, well-fed, whatever life. Follow him to the cross. I've been doing this Christian thing for 47 years. Because I don't remember when I came to Jesus. (laughs) I don't have a good testimony. It's kind of a bummer when I hear somebody with a really good testimony. You know, like how Tim Hawkins said, man, I wish I was addicted to crack. You know, because then you have a good testimony. <laughs> I just grew up in church. That doesn't, it's like big deal. Who cares? And I've gone over my time. I apologize. I'm almost done. I've talked really fast. I've really tried. I've been doing this thing a long time, and I got to honest. I this is. Can I be honest with you all? Can I lay this honestly on you guys? I've been doing this a long time. This church thing. There's an awful lot of posers. An awful lot of posers. A lot of fakers. A lot of people who when they realize where this thing's headed kick and scream and run the other way let's pray Heavenly Father pray that you would steal our souls our hearts for what Jesus has called us to thank you that he's not a king that requires things that he himself isn't willing to do. Thank you that this is a king who went to the cross. At the same time, it's scary because he's not just in an ivory tower ordering us around, telling us to do things, and we can go, well, you're not doing it. That's scary. Help us, Father, to follow you no matter the cost. Amen.